signatures detected. Shield up. Signatures detected. Context Southfleet Command. What's happening? Co- context Southfleet Command. Delay that order. Context Southfleet Command. This is the captain. Context Southfleet Command. Get out of my chair. 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 We have engaged the Klingons. Klingons. Welcome to The Greatest Discovery, a new Star Trek podcast from the makers of The Greatest Generation. I'm Ben Harrison. I'm Adam Pranica. Almost halfway through season three of Discovery, Adam. I know. We have titles for all the episodes. Did you see this? Oh, I did not see that. They still don't seem to have promos uh, for for some of these. The next episode is Unification 3. Hmm. Then we get the Sanctuary, Terra Firma Part 1, Terra Firma Part 2, The Citadel, also written by today's writer, today's episode's writer, uh, then The Good of the People, and then the finale, the 13th episode of Season 3. It's called Outside. So uh, what do we got? 15 episodes for Season 1, 14 for Season 2, 13 of Season 3. They lose an episode every year. Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> that's the angel share right there. Yeah. <laughs> Each time you make a season. Yeah. If this does wind up running seven seasons as Star Trek programs are meant to, we'll, uh, we'll barely have any episodes by, by that last season. They'll really have to tell a tight little story. Interesting thing about the dates is we get a Christmas Eve episode and a New Year's Eve episode. Being mm-hmm. That's how the calendar works. So stay up late. God damn it. <laughs> That's fucking annoying for us. Yeah. Yeah, because because uh, we're looking... Well, I mean, we record Discovery uh, usually on either Thursday or Friday, so... Yeah. I suppose it's just a task of watching, not a task of recording on a holiday. And I, I watch on a holiday. That's the easy part. This is <laughs> the hard part. So you're planning recording Christmas Day. That's what, that's what you're telling me right now? <laughs> No. Here's the thing, because you're going to be fucking angry about it. And because I have a the solipsistic worldview of an only t- child, I know that I will interpret that. Even though I'm having this conversation with you right now, I will interpret that as you being mad at me. <laughs> that that's what's happening. Thanksgiving, always Thursday. I'm yeah. going to assume that we're going to record on Friday. Yeah. Uh, Christmas Eve on a Thursday making Christmas a Friday that I don't know I don't know what we do about that maybe we record on Christmas Eve again it's not like we're going anywhere why don't we like write some thoughts down and then like get one of those programs that can deep fake our voices and uh and just make like a virtual episode those days (laughs) how about we do these shows and and you assume I'm not mad at you I'm not mad at you Ben um (laughs) easier said than done (laughs) Everyone thinks I'm mad at them. It's just my face, okay? <laughs> I have resting mad at you face. Yeah, yeah. That's why no one wants to take pictures of me. <laughs> yeah, they come to our live shows and they're like, hey, can we get you guys both to sign this poster? Then we'd like to take a picture with Rob and Ben. Yeah, I took a lot of photos on the last tour. Now I know why. Rob's got a lovable smile. Rob's is a lovable person. Yeah. Do you want to get into this episode, Adam? It's kind of an interesting app here. I feel like uh, it addresses a lot of the things that you've been talking about pretty directly. By the end, we'll be able to determine if this was a lovable episode. <laughs> it's up to us to decide and not Rob's, though I guess Rob's could edit us into a way that 
that took his side on the issue. It's Star Trek Discovery Season 3, Episode 6, Scavengers. Scavengers, of course, the Latin word for scavengers. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. In Latin, it's actually a paragraph about what it means to be scavengers. Um, <laughs> this episode opens with Saru enumerating some uh, some upgrades that the Disco has received from their home port uh, at Federation HQ. They've got detached nacelles now. Wicked. Boy, if anything ever got me excited to see the disco flying around it was this open and then the the disco stays in port the entire episode i know (laughs) it's have we ever seen a ship in starfleet with its registry repainted as often as discovery (laughs) in three seasons it's been uh, it's been uss discovery and its standard registry the iss discovery with the uh mirror registry and now uh the A version, they they designated it the A after its new nacelles were installed. Yeah, does it count the, uh, as, a, as an installation if they're not attached? I think uh, that makes the work order kind of difficult to <laughs> to verify, right? Oh yeah, and the permitting process is a nightmare because the nacelles have to be at least five feet from the property line. Right. It's like, well, where are they going to be if they're not attached? A lot of the ships of the fleet have nacelles grandfathered in. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Those pre-burned ships, it's very coveted these days. We get a visual of old worker bees and new worker bees working together. Isn't that the <laughs> message here? Yeah. Those repair robots really seem to have become a thing that they want to show in every episode. And they're in like they're in the opening credits sequence now. I want to learn more about those, too. Uh, Yeah, if you were hoping to this episode, that's not happening. No. This opening scene is the one that I saw at the end of of Ready Room last week. And uh, it's a scene in which... Will Wheaton is so grateful that you're watching Ready Room. Thank you so much. In a way that makes me really not want to watch it, even to do my job and find out what the next week's episode might be about. <laughs> it's a version of Will Wheaton I don't recall being his public face at all. Yeah. He is so kind and excited and cuddly in a way that uh, is not recognizable to me. That's the thing you have to do as a host. You have to be the welcoming guy bringing people into your show. And he is very that. Yeah, for sure. And uniquely appealing to a a type of fan that really wants that mm-hmm. extra thing. You know, like there are some people that watch this show and when the episode is over are like, great, fun app. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. there are other people that are like, I want interviews with, you know, the guy that designed the compadge. Mm-hmm. And uh, I feel like I feel like the disposition that he is he's bringing is uh, of a unique appeal to that type of person. I think he's the strongest after Trek host that show's ever had. And I think it's because of that, of that level of energy he brings to it. I think you need, I'm not disparaging combat designer guy at all, but I think you need to bring a high level of excitement ahead of an interview with combat guy, for example. 
because Combatch Guy is not a public facing person in ninety nine percent of his of his work. You see this in junkets and stuff all the time. Like the people who create entertainment are often not very entertaining people of themselves, <laughs> right? And so yeah. you need an I mean, look at us, for example. Yeah. So you need an interviewer that can make up that ground. And I think that's right. I think that is what Will Wheaton's doing on the show in an effective way. But it is different. Also different is how Starfleet passes out jobs. And we see that in this scene. The Admiral is kind of giving out a bunch of, uh, you know, deliver shields missions to the assembled captains. It doesn't seem like there are many captains at his disposal, right? Now. I wonder if what percentage of the fleet this represents. I mean, you got to believe there are ships that are just at the edge of sensor range making their way back that are just like slow poking it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's the hope. But uh, Saru's reading the minutes from the last captain's meeting while Vance is, is delegating tasks and the, uh, the banger gets dropped in the room that Saru's got a ship that can do what the others can't. And so it really kind of shows up the other captains in a weird way. Yeah, we have a cooler ship than you. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry to break it to you. It. I know it looks like a uh, a real busted and broken down antique, but it's actually the hottest hot rod in the fleet. And uh, a lot of jaws hit the floor. This is uh, something that the Admiral wants to keep a, a closely held secret. It uh, doesn't leave this room. So if you are one of the captains, the Admiral, or... A couple of the security guys that happen to be standing around <laughs> are the only people who are allowed to know this. There's no reason to tell them right now, even. Yeah. I think th- I think this is a mistake, Vance. Yeah, because they're going to get in some hot water. They're going to come across some mm-hmm. some emerald chain ship and be like, hey, like radio to the fleet. Tell them to send discovery. And then the crew is going to be like, what do you mean? Right. Send discovery. Yeah, you can see that happening. We also get a little tour of the bridge. The uh, The crew gets uh, introduced to their fancy new communicators and their fancy new ship controls. We're going to have a lot of particle effects going forward on Star Trek Discovery. I, uh, I cannot believe they edited out the unboxing scene of the new <laughs> combat. <laughs> the way it's so satisfying to peel off that plastic... Like this is something yeah. that Lower Decks did that that I feel like this episode could have done. The brand new Combadge, it's it's like new iPhone day for them. It's great. Totally, very exciting. Uh, Owo uh, is particularly excited by the programmable matter controls that like flow up out of the screens and uh, interact with her fingers. Interesting. She makes two cool cylinders that rise from her her station. It reads your bio signs. Save that for your quarters, Owo. <laughs> uh, Linus accidentally transports himself into the bridge. I feel like like this is a, a rule of threes transporter gag with Linus in this episode. I feel like what it's going to be is eventually Linus just accidentally transports himself into space near the ship and is off the show after that. I was ready for that to happen the second time because this joke (laughs) is fucked out from the beginning. (laughs) Not well done. Um, They are interrupted not just by Linus, but also by Book's ship, which shows up 
uh, captained not by book, but by his cat. Yeah, that thing's got to be easy to pilot if the cat can do it. The the floor is just covered in litter pellets, though. Like, you do not want to walk <laughs> around there barefoot. Brushing that off your feet is one of the grosser things. Um, he, he has a, a hollow message that Saru and Michael Burnham get a load of. Uh, it's three weeks old, and he's talking about having found a black box for uh, another ship that was destroyed in the burn. And this introduces a theory that Michael Burnham is excited about sharing with Saru, which is that there is a slight variance in the time that the burn impacted each ship it impacted. And so if we have some some data points, we can start to figure out a point of origin, a focal point for the burn. So it didn't just happen everywhere all at once. It, it, it spread out from a single point, presumably. This is an understandable concept, I think, to most people. You need a third data point in order to uh, figure out a trend, right? Right. So with th- this third one's going to be important and subsequent ones too. Saru understands this concept, but he also has this yummy plate of shit that he really wants to eat and he wants Michael to help him. Mm. We've known this all along, right? Like finding what happened at the burn is, is Michael Burnham's primary mission and it always has been. And yeah. and Saru seems surprised that this does not integrate well into his uh, his boot kissing <laughs> right now. Saru reminds her that their primary mission is to serve the Federation and this is just freelancing that, that she's proposing. Can't do it. Michael Burnham walks out of his off office in horror and runs to the first person who would be willing to do something insubordinate if it served their goals. Dad said no, so she asks mom. And you know mom <laughs> she is asks down. Evil mom. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I loved the composition on Giorgio in this scene where we've got her talking to Michael, but then her face is reflected behind Michael. Yeah. Like she is enveloping her. That's fun. And uh, like they talk about it, like they talk about the uh, the rinse repeat mutiny that Michael Burnham seems to (laughs) find herself doing all the time. It's in her nature. Yeah. Regardless of what universe she's in. And uh, but Giorgio, Giorgio will ride for unsanctioned mission every time. Right. If you unsanction a mission, Giorgio is going to do that mission. Uh, because it's just that easy, they board Book's ship and take it to Hanau, uh, undetected. Do you want an espresso? Want an espresso? We get a couple of these uh, these trance effects with her, where where she sees some mirror universe visions, and I I slowed these down to frame by frame segments to try to get uh, a greater bit of intelligence out of them like they have a very similar uh style of presentation to the flashbacks that uh voke slash ash tyler would have about his uh his surgery right right to the extent that that one of the flashes is is mirror universe Giorgio fucking the klingon chancellor <laughs> <laughs> don't know what that has to do with it 
But there's yeah. a there's a guy with a helmet on the ground, and they have a gaping chest wound. I don't know if it's clear uh, who this person is at this point. She says the name San a bunch of times. Yeah. And also, we see a lot of uh, mirror universe imagery that that uh, Terran Empire logo. We see the Charon, and then we see uh, Lorca jumping into the the fireball. Oh, really? For a split second, yeah. I thought that was interesting. No kidding. I missed that. You really have to hammer the Apple TV remote play pause button, which is <laughs> just a nightmare to use. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, not a well-designed remote. Actually, I uh, I ordered a wall mount for my Apple TV recently, Yeah, and it came with a little rubber, like, I guess bumper case for the remote Hmm. and it actually like hugely improved the remote's usability because one of the problems with that remote is that it's it's uh you know parallel on both axes and i'm always like picking it up and hitting the wrong button because it's like in the opposite position of what i expected it to be and the bumper like gives your hand like a reference point that the remote never had Got to get this bumper out. I know, I know, I do. <laughs> I got to hang my Apple TV on the wall. It sounds like. Yeah, it's great. I got, I got everything hidden behind my TV now. Video games, Apple TV. It's all. It just looks like one rectangle. <laughs> That's the kind of uniformity we're going for. <laughs> In Benjamin I. Harrison's remodel. What did you think of the split diopter shot? from Giorgio's eye to almost a full body shot of Michael Burnham deep in the background. Pretty bold. And what it said to me was like the split diopter shot has become super crisp and sharp over the years in a way that uh, I almost didn't recognize. Yeah, I almost wondered if it was uh, an effect instead of uh, a lens thing. It could have been a comp. You're right. I mean... It's hard to tell because because the difference in focal length is so different between the two shots. Like I I would believe either one, but uh, yeah, Giorgio is is snapped out of her fugue state by the offer of some espresso, uh, which she refuses, and uh, and Michael wants to know like what what this thing is because it is the same thing she saw Giorgio going through in the hallway at the end of the last episode. But they don't get to they don't get to dig too deep into it because they come out of warp in the aftermath of the Battle of Wolf three five nine. Real space junkyard going on in orbit of Hanau. Yeah, now looking great. Probably a nice little like uh, unintended defense system. If your planet's surrounded by space junk, you know yeah. you, you don't need a a substantial orbital defense. One would think. <laughs> Yeah, just try getting through my trash. Most things are going to get taken out just by <laughs> trying to navigate through it. Yeah. What is looking good is the Orion Syndicate uh, leader of this planet who hollows up to their ship to tell them to fuck off. Very hunky guy. I can't think of a bad looking Orion. Yeah. I think they're all very good looking, right? Yeah. <laughs> they all have kind of like uh, 90s boy band or girl band kind of aesthetics, yeah. I want to say. Yeah. Like this guy, this guy would not look out of place in a 98 degrees. I think there's something going on with the makeup in that it's not just matte green 
uh, color shading. Like I feel like there's mica in it that makes these Orion faces look really glowy and and, and beautiful. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I I think they're doing a great job with with this makeup effect. Yeah. Giorgio and this guy go toe-to-toe in bully mode, and she um, talks her way down by basically saying, like, hey, it's it's the it's the thing that's given them leverage from the moment they showed up. We've got tons of dilithium, and your bosses would be pissed off if they found out you didn't accept our offer of tons of dilithium. Right. We learned this guy's name is Talor, and he's the nephew of Osira. Gives him that that punk nephew vibe that we get throughout the episode, like the mm-hmm. the guy who hasn't earned his station, the guy who's just given a position by a powerful family member, you know, a real piece of shit, <laughs> a, a piece of shit who doesn't uh, doesn't realize how hard everyone else had to work to get there. So Michael finds one of Book's cat collar tracking devices. And she reverses the polarity. She's like, look, I'm tracking Book, and Book's not tracking the cat collar, so uh, we'll we'll be able to find him on the surface. And Giorgio is like, what happened to the cat? Smash cut to Discovery, where Tilly walks into her quarters and finds Grudge uh, in soft focus in the foreground. I love the composition of putting Grudge in the foreground as tall as Tilly. Right. <laughs> Really emphasizing what a chonker this kitty is. Uh, for some reason, Grudge is in Tilly's room. I guess we find out later, like, it's the message, right? It's the message Michael Burnham gives to Tilly, which is, I'm not here. hmm Yeah. But she has to confirm this by asking the computer, and the computer also tells Tilly that Book's ship is gone at the same time. I kind of believe that it's pretty easy if you get onto Book's ship to just leave whenever you want, because... Discovery's sensors are probably not good enough to penetrate his cloak, right? Is it all-time cloak in the in the cargo bay? You got to think so. I mean, it's just, you know, it's it's bad feng shui if it's not cloaked, I feel like, because it just fills the fills your visual field with ship and it's like it's otherwise like a nice airy open space. We can't think about those trivial concerns though, Ben. We need an exposition walk and we get one on Hanau. <laughs> Where we yeah. understand what's happening here, it's kind of a, uh, a a a junkyard of old ships and slave labor working for Osira. Uh, the nephew is saying that these are people that owe Osira, and they work for their entire lives there. They owe Osira, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, this is a pretty grim place. Georgio likes it. She, she thinks they. Uh, they would really get a kick out of her around here, but uh, but she does not break cover. Their their goal is to get in here and see if they can figure out where Book is, and and the cover that they're using is that they are that Giorgio is a a traitor of some kind, and Michael Burnham is her servant. Probably a relationship that that Mug can fall into pretty easily. <laughs> You know, having yeah. having servants around, like like this yeah. is not this is this does not feel like acting to her. No, she's like, this is my servant, but uh, you have indentured servants, and that's that is really impressive to me. I like your vibes over here. One of the things we realize as we take a tour of this place is that uh, there is an implant involved in the laborers who work there in the in the back of their neck. It's very matrix like. 
this, yeah. this implant and it's installed by uh, a cut Andorian. This Andorian's no drama, 420 friendly <laughs> and double cut because uh, both of his antenna have been removed and he's the guy that installs these things. We've been talking a lot about our plan to get on the show. We don't ask for much. We just want to be blown out of an airlock and killed like any normal fan of Star Trek. I would settle for dialogue limited to, ah! I would settle for having my head popped off like the guys in this episode. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Come on, call us in for something like that. Shoot me from far away. You wouldn't even have to tell. It was me and my dumb body flailing about out there. But the thing about... Rin is that he got the golden ticket. No kidding. The way you get on Star Trek Discovery is by marrying Mary Wiseman, Ben, because Rin uh-huh. is played by Noah Averback Katz, and uh, he and Mary Wiseman are a couple. No kidding. I, th- I thought you were going to tell me he had a Star Trek podcast. <laughs> this is not like uh, this is not like Orion nepotism. I want to say like it it wasn't (laughs) like Noah is not like you and me without any sort of professional acting training. Like he went to Juilliard with Mary Wiseman. Like, (laughs) okay. So he also is a serious actor. (laughs) Guess who he played in King Lear at Juilliard. King Lear. (laughs) (laughs) The title character. I too crept the boards in my youth. (laughs) Yeah, so I, I'm, Ben, I'm almost ready to just put to bed any hope of of being yeah. on Discovery. I mean, I think I think they're doing fine. Yeah, I think they're doing fine without us. Unfortunately, they're not uh, hard up for Juilliard trained actors. Yeah, <laughs> they're not. I felt like this episode was very pointedly about Star Wars in a way that uh, I've rarely detected in Star Trek, but this felt like a restraining bolt and this whole episode being about slavers. And mm. like, there's a lot of Star Wars imagery, like the the ship at the end that they get on really looks like a an episode one Naboo ship. And, uh, and it's, you know, one of the, one of the things that people really criticize Star Wars for is that there's lots of slavery depicted without, uh, without much comment upon it. That's why Solo is one of the only good Star Wars movies. That is a great observation because I feel like if this were a TNG episode, we would have given up on the primary mission and pivoted into, we've got to free these people. This is nuts. What's going on down yeah. here? This is a this is a humanitarian disaster or whatever. But they never- Picard would just be pacing in his ready room, speechifying the injustice of this. They never regard the slavery at all. Up until the moment where it's time to 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 flee on the transport ship, but it's never remarked upon, even in in secret between Book and Michael Burnham, as as something that they need to try to solve. Yeah, and you kind of get the sense that Michael Burnham is so mission focused that she might not try and solve the slavery if yeah. it doesn't actually like advance the cause of getting the black box. I totally felt that way. Yeah, Book works with a Bajoran guy down there. It was neat to see a, a Bajoran person. He's got kind yeah. of a bum elbow. If you're working in the scrapyard and you're and you're moving pipes around, you definitely don't want to be working with a guy who can't uh, 
lift something over his head and this guy's really struggling. Yeah. Looks like he's also lost his earring too and uh, a scrapyard is a bad place to lose a Bajoran earring, I think. That that sucker's <laughs> gone. One of the guards catches this Bajoran dude stealing a water ration and his punishment is uh, for Talor to open the doors of the of the scrapyard and uh, like lick shots at this dude's feet so he runs across the yard toward the the uh, electronic frontier you know some uh some prison planets don't need an electronic frontier but this one does and uh this is very much a scene about establishing the head popper offer so that we can be afraid of it later right <laughs> because uh this poor guy gets his head popped off Book was trying to convince the guard, like, uh, I just believe that uh, that a slave laborer deserves a, a cold bottle of beer after a hard day's work. <laughs> makes, a, makes a man feel free, even for a little while. It's too bad he found it so unconvincing. Yeah. Well, I shouldn't have been trying to convince the, a Section 31 guy of that. Pop goes lies head. Yeah. It's disturbing for all involved. I feel like even even the guards are a little bit disgusted by this. Like, geez, I didn't know the fence worked like that. Fuck. Was anyone looking for an earring? <laughs> oh. Oh. Sorry. Anybody uh, want to buy an earring? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Adam, there is a B story in this episode, and it uh, surrounds Adira and Stamets. Adira is none the worse for wear after her examination by the nurse on board the uh, Federation space station. You'd think it never even happened. Yeah, like it it goes uncommented on and she is back on disco uh, working on the retrofit, stapling all the new technology into their old ship. And Stamets comes kind of like raging into the engineering section Finding his workspace has been rearranged in his absence and pretty pissed off about that. And he finds Adira there and uh, he, he continues his kind of like surprisingly friendly uh, mode of interacting with her here. Right. They they left the music cue out, which I was grateful for. <laughs> this scene was really significant for me in a couple of ways. One is that... I think Gray really becomes the viewer here because Gray asks a question that has been front of mind for me for a long time now, which is, when are we going to see the future? Like, we've been in the future for uh, five episodes already. This is our sixth one. And all we've seen is future past. All we've seen is Scrapyard and, and Cowboyville and and whatever other bullshit we've been to and and all of the future that we've seen is the hallway of Federation HQ and right what gives <laughs> like i'm totally with gray on this like we should be we should be exploring this new future and this seems like a show at this point that's really holding back on that part of its ability or location for a story yeah, there is so much in this episode about like interacting with a new with a new phone kind of energy and that's what this scene turns into. You know, there there's the hilarious uh appearance of uh of their Saurian shipmate 
for a second and then you know we check out the the spork box where adira has upgraded the interface for stamets so he doesn't have to get stigmata every time he operates it it's pretty cool that it's astroglide based like he, he just <laughs> dips his hands into these uh little uh I'm sure they have a name, but like when you go to a Catholic church, you you put your hands into the holy water. He's got like two hol- uh-huh. holy gel buckets. And then uh-huh. uh, what's great about this gel is that you don't need a roll of paper towels in the spore box. They, the uh, liquid comes right off. And they won't degrade a condom. So if you have somebody else in there with you. Right. <laughs> Adira did all this spore drive stuff without permission and it doesn't sound like they're going to test it before they get possibly sent to Argith, which seemed to be a great leap. Yeah, but don't worry. They're not going to get sent to Argus. Yeah. Back on Hanau, uh, Michael finds Book uh, and, and is able to like get a, a few minutes with him because Giorgio is occupying the attention of all the other guys. And the deal is he's he's got the black box it's hidden in the wall of his quarters, but uh, they need to they need to get it and go. He's being very selfless about this. He uh, has been enslaved, and he's like, "Don't worry about me. Just get the black box. Like that's all that really matters right now." And Michael Burnham is like, "Are you fucking nuts? Like I'm not leaving you in slavery. We're gonna get the black box and you, and we're gonna go." Book doesn't want to be sleepy hollowed though, and I get that. Like. He really needs her to understand the stakes involved if he tries to leave. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I have a, a restraining bolt as well, Michael. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we feel good in this scene, though. Like, the eye jammies that lead to their secret embrace around the corner. This is good. Yeah. What's bad is that Saru just realized now, halfway through the episode, that Michael Burnham and Book Ship are gone for some reason. And so he needs yeah. to talk to Tilly about this for some reason. Tilly cannot cover for Burnham in this moment. She doesn't even try. I feel like Tilly assumed that that Saru knew that she knew. Like that it felt that transparent. Yeah, I mean, I felt really bad for Tilly in this moment and I felt I was like mad at Michael Burnham for putting her in a position of having to cover for her yeah. until Tilly was like you're in a like an impossible position Saru and like that's fucked up for us and the rest of the crew because if Starfleet decides that we are rabble rousers that can't be trusted one and all mm-hmm. then we're going to we're going to get broken up they're going to take over the ship with their own trusted people it's going to be fucked up so you need to go you need to go ratter out to the admiral you can really trace every decision that michael burnham has made including this one all the way back to that hallway scene between her and tilly where tilly's like you you left us behind right like you you got over us and michael couldn't even say the words that she had like yeah. every decision since then has been a confirmation of of her single-mindedness about this burn mission she's on to the exclusion of all other factors or concerns. I wonder if they will address why the urgency for Michael Burnham, because it seems like there is like a mission that is like, there's maybe 12 to 24 hours that it will be the main thing that Disco has to worry about. And then maybe they'll have a moment to breathe I guess they talk about like the the admiral is always feeling like he's treading water, 
But but like I just wonder why she can't even wait 12 hours to go to go get this black box. Do you think she wants to find her mom more or less than than what caused the burn? I don't know. Because she doesn't even bring up her mom. It's other characters that do that. I wish that those were more linked yeah. somehow. Like they had established a reason why uncovering the mystery of the burn had a direct relationship with finding her mom. I feel that way too. It feels like something that they could connect three episodes from now by choice, you know? Right. Adam, I, a, a theory is occurring to me. Is that that smell? <laughs> We've seen a lot of setup for Emerald Chain. First, just mention made of it. Do you think there's a literal Emerald Chain that's being worn by Osira? <laughs> well, I, I have, hope not. I have a specific Osira theory, actually. Okay. Is Osira going to turn out to be Michael Burnham's mother? My immediate reaction to that is so viscerally negative. <laughs> Please don't let that be the case. Like, don't let Michael Burnham have two mirror universe parents, basically. That's what that's what would end up happening. We already played this out with yeah. Giorgio, right? I was trying to think in my head like, oh, well, but maybe the Emerald Chain winds up being good and the Starfleet winds up being bad and it's like a surprise switcheroo. But we know that the Emerald Chain has slaves based on this episode. So there's no there's no redemption of Emerald Chain. The fucking math of this is so ridiculous. But like if Osira is Michael Burnham's mom, what if it's. What if they ended up in the mirror universe and it is Michael Burnham's mom, but it's mirror universe Michael Burnham's mom. It's not the good mom. Oh, shit. And that's the big reveal. <laughs> like they went through the wormhole, but the wormhole took them into alternate 800 years into the future into the mirror oh, universe man. again. Is that too fucked out, though? I don't know. I feel like we're starting to get into like six dimensional writer's room chess territory that I right. don't think that uh, I don't I mean. I'm not saying that this isn't a capable writer's room. I'm just saying I don't think that that's the kind of games they're playing with us. Well, you and I run an incapable writer's room. So. Yeah, that's true. Um, these, are the, these are the theories on our whiteboard. Yeah. <laughs> For our new show, The Incapable X-Men. The scene ends with Tilly doing that thing where she's like, you know, you got to tell Vance just so we all don't get the Burnham rep around here. And yeah. Saru seems reluctantly convinced that that is what he should do. And and when he talks to to Vance, it's like, uh, well, well, thanks for telling me. I mean, I'm glad you think that you're going to be able to go kill a bunch of Emerald Chain people uh, without her, because that's probably what you're going to have to do. Yeah. Given that the chain has pulled out of the diplomatic talks that we didn't know they were having. Up to this point, I didn't know that gangsters were uh, were interested in engaging in diplomacy. That's cool. Gangsters need a seat at the table, Ben. Obviously, <laughs> I like this one. The dog, one dog goes one way, and the other dog goes the other way. Back on Hanau, Michael Burnham fuck Bokai's a drone off of their backs, and there's like a moment <laughs> of pause where they're like, "That that should buy us some time, right?" No, no time. No, because the alarm goes off immediately. The drone is plugged right into the whole system. <laughs> this is a, a moment that's coordinated with Rin and the other laborers. There's this shift change that's that's happening, which I think suggests a greater number of slaves on the production floor uh, that they'll be able to use for for a riot that is to come. 
I wondered how much we could trust Book in this moment because he's like telling Rin, like, get everyone ready for this riot. Mm -hmm. And we know from Book's previous conversations with Michael that Rin is not considered trustworthy by anyone here because he turned coat on the Emerald Chain. But but Book is like looking at Rin like, we're going to get out of here with a transport ship. We're going to live off the fat of the land. And Rin is like, okay, whatever you say, boss. He's so chill. He's not like Rin and the angry inches. Like you'd think that he would be out for fucking blood after what happened to him, right? Yeah. Is that how the antenna work for the Andorians? Like if, if you were to take them off, does it change their personalities? I don't know much about this species. Um, I feel like Andorians are a TOS and Enterprise species because I know that Jeffrey Combs played an Andorian a bunch in Enterprise, but I don't remember if we we know much about them. Mm. Yeah. Well, maybe we'll know more about Rin later on because he seems pretty instrumental to this plan at this point. And I think he's motivated by like like part of the sadness of his character is that He's in an impossible situation. He tries to be as kind as he can to the people around him, trying to make a bad situation better. But ultimately, like he's putting the bolt in people's necks. There's no humane way to do that. Right. It's it's that situation where you die if you don't. A lot of things start happening all at once. The you know the worker revolt is popping off, but uh, Michael Burnham and and Mug are in in like hand shackles back aboard Book's ship where the Emerald Chain guys have found the kingly stash of dilithium. And uh, <laughs> Talor is going to kill them. And Michael Burnham is like, actually, you're not going to kill us because we probably know where more of that is from or we wouldn't have a huge pile of it. So uh, consider, again, what your bosses will think if you kill us. And this turns into a great big Star Trek fight. Right. It's a real fist fight and an unfortunate mirror universe vision. Do you want an espresso? espresso. Takes Mug to the ground uh, at just the worst possible time. They've squirreled away a little uh, a little BB gun that mirror universe Giorgio has the chance to take Talor down with, and and she instead gets taken down by her vision. It's too bad. Yeah. So Michael Burnham is there, like getting choked out by this guy and looking across the floor at Giorgio who is just lost in a reverie about this uh, this dead body in front of her and uh, the escaping slaves are on the surface of the planet looking uh, longingly at their at their transport out of here which they cannot get to because the head popper offer is still active. I wanted to see more heads pop, like the impatient guy going like, I can't, I can't wait any longer. <laughs> can't wait. <laughs> they can't all work, right? Right. Mike Sterling, what's the plan? Like that's sort of the idea behind a prison riot, right? Like they can't kill all of us. I mean, I think that this episode is very much pointed at Star Wars. So if one of those like big headed kind of squid looking aliens could have been like, the shield is still up. It's a trap. I mean, like, come on, just give us that, right? <laughs> right. So uh, Mug comes to, she shoots Talor finally. They're able to take that shield controller off of his body uh, just before he beams away. Yeah, I'm guessing he's coming back. Talor lives. Talor lives, but they, they shut the shields down 
and Rin and Book and everybody are able to make a break for the transport ship, but uh, a lot of these guards are coming out finally and starting to lick shots at them, and Rin actually takes a bullet for Book. Yeah. Gets a, a big burning chest wound. It's not looking good for Rin. They're they're trapped behind some debris while everybody else is running for the ship and looks like they're kind of pinned down and there's no hope. But then out of the smoke of the factory, Book's ship comes in flying air cover. This was a fucking awesome moment, I thought. It was a great effect. I like how Book's ship flew library book style, like through the stacks before uh, cutting down horizontally and then like reconfiguring itself. That was neat. Yeah. A little on the nose for a character named Book, but I'll take it. And then like, this has got to be a moment that that Mug enjoyed just pummeling <laughs> via air support, like, yeah. like using the ship's weapons on the, on the ground troops. They don't stand a chance. Yeah. If you don't really see that very often in Star Trek, right? Like a like air cover is something that like for all the space combat scene scenes Star Trek has. Yeah. The the air support look is something you very rarely get. Yeah. Book and Rin get beamed up to Book's ship and uh Rin is in really bad shape, but they uh they clear out of there not before Mug shoots a bunch of the scrap ships that they have hovering in orbit so that uh, they will crash down into the surface of the planet, presumably killing lots of Orion Syndicate baddies, but also probably a bunch of slaves that were like on board the ships, scrapping them. All those innocent contractors brought in to do the job were killed. Casualties of a war they had nothing to do with. I wonder how many of the scrap ships were involved in the Romulan Resettlement. It seems like I, th- I thought a couple of these ships looked familiar in that way. Oh, wow. Yeah. I, of course, didn't do the research, but they looked like they were that kind of build. And I'm sure there are so many of them that could be scrapped yeah. down. They're like modern cruise ships. We're recording this on Thursday morning. So a lot of the kinds of articles that would have research like that haven't been published yet. Right. I'm just writing this one in my head, Ben. Yeah. I love that about you. Anyways, they've got the uh, they got the the black box out of there. That's great news. And uh, now it's time for Michael Burnham to confront Giorgio about, hey, uh, remember when I was getting choked out back there and you were like lost in a reverie? What was that about? I think this is a good scene for Giorgio. I like that this is the maximum amount she can confide, you know? Yeah. I don't know what's happening to me. It's getting worse. It's not in my nature to trust anyone. And we're just going to have to leave it at that is where it is. And like, there's no amount of Michael Burnham reassuring her that she's among friends that will unconvince her of that because that's just not who she is. It's almost that Michael Burnham's the wrong person specifically to confide in also given their history. Right. Like, I don't know that anyone could conceive of a person that would be right for her to confide in. Maybe David Cronenberg is that person. I started to wonder because of how elliptical those scenes with David Cronenberg were, if Giorgio has been given some kind of like remorse drug or, you know, like, I wonder if 
her psychopathy oh. is being undone intentionally and this is like this fugue state is her like remembering some horrible thing she did and feeling regret which is a an emotion she has like no tools for processing ben you can't pray out the mirror universe it's <laughs> not how it works <laughs> But that would be interesting if she's if what she's going through is a result of of a process, an intentional yeah. process. Some people wondered if he was Odo. Did you read that? No. God, that would be it's a hell of a combination. Odo really started to nail the face. Someone yeah. else said that uh, because Cronenberg wears glasses, that they might be a mirror universe person because of the whole eye thing. Hmm. The mirror yeah. universe, the the sensitivity to light. I couldn't tell if they were transitions lenses in there or not. Yeah. A lot of hanging theories there. We're not close to solving any of those mysteries. Like I was saying, that it was it was a very elliptical bunch of mm-hmm. scenes that we got there. We also get a confrontation between Stamets and Adira because Stamets is apparently the first person who has noticed that Adira talks to herself because she goes to the she goes to the lunchroom and is having a conversation with Gray. I, I've got to believe that the rest of the crew permits Adira to walk around talking to herself because of the power imbalance of future and past, right? Like, I don't think anyone asks Adira if she's okay, if you're OG Discovery. It is, it's convenient that Stamets is the first one emboldened enough to, to sit with Adira and and talk about this openly. Though, as I was saying, like, I would assume that other people on the disco have noticed this and just haven't felt like they could say anything. Yeah, it's. I wonder how much walking around talking to Gray she's been doing mm-hmm. so far. Because, I mean, we did see her in engineering doing it, but it seemed like she was kind of like off in a corner by herself. So who knows? Do you think that this is going to wind up being... Um, described as an emergence, like because uh, because we've we've seen in Deep Space Nine a couple of times where right. Dax had to call up a a previous host, and uh, there's the Esri needs to solve a murder episode where mm-hmm. it is very much the same mechanic. Her her previous host, the murderer, is like walking around talking to her, and she can see him, but nobody else can. I think that's a great callback, and I'm I'm actually uh, glad that we saw that episode so recently. Yeah, because yeah. it really helps tie that idea into this one. Yeah, it, it would seem that way, but neither of them discuss the circumstance in those terms. It's instead a a, a shared currency of them both having the experience of having dead lovers who aren't really gone. Right. And like a weird thing to be able to connect over, like a totally unnervingly weird thing that they can that they can connect over. And I wonder about like Stamets was already like weirdly predisposed to Adira was all already before he knew about Gray like nicer to her than anyone else he's ever interacted with on the show aside from Hugh Culber. Mm-hmm. Maybe even nicer to to her than Hugh Culber. Yeah. We can't leave this scene without calling attention to a line of dialogue here Ben that 
to me clanged like the life form song in Star Trek <laughs> Generations when Adira asks Stamets if he's really kind of like the bomb. You're kind of like the bomb. Oh. <laughs> Get that out of here. That that should never have left the room. I I didn't even understand what it meant. Like like the bomb is in it makes you get your freak on? No, I just think the bomb as in like contemporary, that's the bomb. As in the shit or the best. It really clanged and it and it didn't even seem like she was saying it like the best. It, it was it was a really weird line. That can't happen, really. And I don't know why it did. <laughs> I mean the writer of this episode is also a producer on the show. And uh, she's got a bunch of writing credits, like uh, mm-hmm. Anne Kofel Saunders wrote for Battlestar Galactica, writes for The Boys, like good shows, shows that I like. Uh, I don't think this is a line of dialogue that belongs in Star Trek or in this character's mouth. I, I just don't get it. I'm not trying yeah. to be super hard on a specific person. I think this is a group thing. The group needs to see this line of dialogue and see that it struck through. Yeah, the team needs to be like, uh, this doesn't feel like the show. It doesn't feel like the character. Yeah. Anyway, Adira wants to take out Stamets' forearm mice, and uh, and this is something that he's game for. Given the success of the, uh, of the Astroglide tubs and the spore box, uh, I'm imagining that the mice might be replaced with something similar. That's not the case. He's just gonna get his regular forearms back. Speaking of removals, uh, Book had the neck thing removed in Six Bay, and uh, Rin's going to live, but they didn't give Rin back his antenna. They're going to leave those stumps as they are. I wondered if they were going to do some kind of like, you know, the 930 years in the future version of waving a light on it and have some like programmable matter rebuilding his antenna. This show knows who Nog is. Like, they should just re-nog his antenna. Like, <laughs> it's weird. Like, I know they're there, but they just feel different. That's yeah, Rin's story totally. for the rest of the series. His phantom antenna. He, I think, is going to be a, a going concern, right? Like, he's written onto the show. As a guy who knows how the Emerald Syndicate works, yeah, I think you got to keep a guy like him around. And torture the shit out of him. <laughs> <laughs> We get a smooch between Michael Burnham and Book. Linus thought he was going to interrupt it with his hilarious gag, but uh, no such luck, Linus. They're still going to smooch. We get a nice 4X cross dissolve on this kiss. We really get swirly and, and moody here. <laughs> this, is, this is a big moment visually. Like they're, they're doing everything they can to jack up the significance of this kiss. It didn't feel like a Sam and Diane dynamic between them. Yeah. I thought that there was like a possibility of a romance when they first met, but they seemed to kind of set that aside really quickly. And then there didn't seem to be like unresolved tension about that. But suddenly, suddenly they're smooching and I'm here for it. It's a hot smooch. Linus is kind of dumb, right? If he can't figure out the transporter. This is what Star Trek's about. Infinite combinations of, of infinite types uh, including dumb. Infinite dumbs and infinite combinations. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's okay to be dumb on Star Trek. 
It's also okay to be a jerk, apparently. Uh, we have a moment between Stamets and Culber where Culber's like, so why are you not being a jerk suddenly to Adira? What do you, what do you think that's about? Yeah. A jerk is who I fell in love with, Stamets. Like, yeah. I kind of I kind of like the jerk. I sort of wish he'd come back. If the jerk isn't here, I don't know why I am. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, because we didn't get it before, I guess, we talk about the similarities between Adira and Stamets here to further cement the idea. We get it. Adira and Stamets, very similar experiences. Yeah. And a very, uh, very irritated skin on Stamets' <laughs> forearms where his implants used to be. Right. The button on the episode is, uh, is paying the piper. We got to... Uh, we got to take our licks at Starfleet HQ. Uh, Vance takes this meeting in the hallway, and this is a late motif we're getting more and more. And I think it's a it's a thing that solidifies just how busy Vance is as a character. We don't take meetings in his office. You can you can catch him in route somewhere. He he doesn't have a standing desk, and he walks and talks and takes his coffee standing up to save time, like a like a Tannenbaum. When I have had jobs in big places, I have totally fallen for the thing that Michael Burnham falls for, which is like this thing that is the most important thing to me feels like the most important thing full stop. So I don't know why it's not my boss's biggest priority. Right. And Saru fell for that shit too. Yep. Because when they start talking to Vance, it's not just that Michael Burnham is in trouble for going AWOL. It's that Saru is in trouble for not running this very interesting black box gambit up the flagpole. Right. It was his job to do that. And instead, Saru chooses the bootlicking path. He doesn't think about things abstractly in a way that, that great leaders need to. He gets a little slap on the knuckles with Vance's ruler but is left with the job of providing consequences to Michael Burnham in whatever way he sees fit. Yeah, I love that Vance doesn't even punish her. It's like, sir, yeah. this is your problem. I, I actually have another meeting to go to. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of important shit going on right now. Yeah. This is like 10th thing on the list. Yeah. So the punishment that Saru mets out is you're not, you're not number one anymore. You're just the science officer. And... Michael Burnham's like, you can't fire me. I quit. <laughs> because that's the international sign of of taking off your comm badge. That's Yeah, either she's going to go do an extrajudicial murder or she's quitting, right? Yeah. Because the episode fades to black on her taking her comm badge off. I think that was always going to be the tension throughout this season. And I think in any story where you have a job and then you're thrust into the future where your old job really doesn't matter. Like her, her connection to this entire thing is, has been loose from the first episode of this season. Yeah. And let's not forget how quick Starfleet was to punish Michael Burnham every single time. Like Starfleet always comes down hard on Michael Burnham Mm -hmm. It's not a surprise to me that she doesn't have the strongest allegiance to it, especially at a moment like this. Yeah. I mean, her tension is that 
she believes more than anything in reconstituting the Federation. And yet, like, living within it is incredibly challenging for her. Yeah. Boy, it's too bad Nan still isn't around, right? Because I can't think of another commander on Discovery who would be the number one. Can you? Maybe it's Culber. He's the only one I can think of that even has three pips. Culber would be a kick-ass commander. Yeah. Yeah, he would rule. He'd have to change out of the white uniform, though. I don't like that. Yeah. We'll be interesting to see if that is developed at all on the next episode. But uh, did you like this episode, Adam? Um, I want to say about this episode and all the others, like as a production, this episode continues to kick ass, like from the effects to the sets, to the challenges they had to face doing this remotely, like all of it. I shouldn't have waited as long to, to praise all of the many parts of the show that are great, but I'm acclimating to the story of the week format again i'm i'm comfortable with that felt like there was not a lot going on in this episode specifically it felt it felt more more thin soup than it usually is on this show for a show that really packs in a lot of the exposition and some of the dialogue uh just really did not work for me in a way that that I feel like you get your moments in new Star Trek where where it's cute or it's definitely like you you see you hear the the tone of a writer in yeah. much in the same way that like we see the hand of a director in a lot of things like you hear a writer you hear a writer's voice and hear instead of the character's voice and I hope this show does a better job at at not making this such a writer forward show a, a, a show that a writer could point to and go, that's me. That's me. You can tell, right? Like that's, that's vanity. That doesn't belong on this show. This is, the show is, the show should be serving the characters in the world. And, um, I know, I know, I know it was just one line of dialogue in this episode that really hit me the wrong way, but I think that is emblematic of a thing that I hope, uh, gets better on this show. It's like when you see an edit, the best edits are ones you don't detect. <laughs> I'm starting to detect the dialogue in a way that that should be imperceptible. It should feel natural, more natural than it is. So that's going to be my answer to the did you like episode. What about you? I may be projecting some personal bias onto this episode, but I really liked the, the way this episode felt like it was a critique of Star Wars. Hmm, like. Yeah. I sort of wonder when you're breaking a season for this show, how you go about doing that. And if you have 13 episodes to play with and you get uh, a moment to do one for funsies, that's like, hey, let's like let's make one that's not like about like advancing the overall plot as much as it is about like something that's on our minds. And I feel like that is the tradition of original series and TNG. Like let's like, like what's something like, what's a thing that we want to say something about with this episode that felt really missing from early discovery. Like every episode is about plot, 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 character, character, character. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And like, you never get to catch your breath and like make a comment about a, an issue outside of the show. And you know, Star Wars is obviously like not the biggest issue in the world, but um, but I also think that uh, Trek has 
often treated other sci-fi franchises with kid gloves that actually deserve some criticism. And so if that's what this episode is trying to do, I, I applaud that. I agree that the dialogue was rough and kind of strange in a few places, but um, overall I thought it was a, a pretty fun one. And, uh, you know, any episode with a head popper offer, I'm, I'm there for. Yeah. Uh, there are a lot of fun details in this episode, the, like the bucket of com badges the, the bucket of dustbusters, like yeah. I like the idea of of Starfleet trash, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely, and and I like the idea of how weird their their like weird old technology is. Like again, they've waved a tricorder in somebody's face and been like, "Look at this weird old tricorder! Yeah. Can you believe it still works? <laughs> Look at this helmet with this weird light on top." Yeah. I think. You know, so many Star Trek series found their footing in the third season, but uh, those were 26 episode seasons when they found their footing. I think it's important to remember, and I'm speaking for myself, like I must remember that this is a very young show that still is trying to figure out its way and and figure out what it is. And uh, I think it's well on its way there. I still really like the show a lot. But um, I do too. Uh, it's 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 going through puberty right now. You know, <laughs> the voice is cracking a little bit. Um. Well, Adam, do you want to see if we have anything in the priority one inbox? Oh yeah, I think you must be of age to to write a priority one message. Priority one message from Starfleet coming in on secured channel. And uh, the first one comes from Christine. It's to Andrew. And the message goes like this. Happy birthday. Well, this has been a year of hell. There's no one else I'd want on my bridge crew. You're the best dad to our small nerd child (laughs) who now loves Mr. Spock, Data, and Chief (laughs) O'Brien. What a specific group of characters to be a fan of. That's awesome. Yeah. (laughs) Just wait till she sees more than the animated series. (laughs) <laughs> I think the animated series is heavy duty. I don't know if I'd show a, a young child that program. There's kind of a lot going on there. Yeah, it's pretty pretty heavy If you're stuff. a small nerd child, though, I bet you're not too young for you, it. Yeah, you could take it. Uh, I'm glad you found joy in all the new Star Trek content and Ben and Adam's commentary. Love you. That's a nice happy birthday note from Christine. Happy birthday, Andrew. Yeah, happy birthday, Andrew. Uh, here is another birthday message. It's from Mary, and it is to Andrew. Oh, could this be the same Andrew? Oh no, Andrew. Anyways, uh, it goes like this: Happy birthday! Whether we're on our fourth rewatch of New Girl, drowning ourselves in Dunkin' Donuts, or perfecting a sarcastic Vulcan salute, there's no one else I'd rather be with during this wild year. My love for you is real! And it is I, Kern. I do not remember my own birthday, but I do know that today is a good day to be born. Kapla! To me, every party is a surprise party. <laughs> uh, wow. Two. A- I, I'm guessing that's two different Andrews. Yeah. Two different birthdays. Gotta but, be. Uh, infinite Andrews and infinite combinations. <laughs> Happiest of birthdays to all Andrews everywhere. 
And uh, if you'd like to get a Priority One message read on the show, it's easy to do. You head to MaximumFun.org slash Jumbotron. It is 100 bucks for a personal message and 200 for a promotional message. We're still working on the glitch on the P1 page that uh, has the two-line set to Andrew and it can't be changed. So yeah, uh, yeah. we're working to fix that. What do you think of when you think of male grooming? Maybe it's a sharp haircut and a little bit of product or a bit of the old beard wax twisted into the ends of a mustache. Maybe it's a shower, a shave, a little spritz of fragrance. Me, I think of shaving my nuts and not just my nuts, all around those nuts. I'm talking all around those nuts. And this form of male grooming is hard to do when your junk looks like a log of Play-Doh rolled through a dustpan in a barber shop. It's wrinkly, it's wriggly, nothing stays in place, and it's the one area where you don't want to have an accident. That's why I'm glad we're sponsored by the spring cleaning champions at Manscaped. They sent me their brand new lawnmower 5.0 Ultra. It's their fifth generation trimmer featuring two interchangeable next-gen skin-safe blade heads, a standard one for taking a little bit off the top, and a new foil blade to go smooth wherever your heart desires. They also sent me an extra-large Manscaped t-shirt, which I will never wear, but it was nice of them to do. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code TREK at manscaped.com. That's 20% off and free shipping with the code TREK at manscaped.com. Nothing like a little spring cleaning in your pants. I spent a lot of last week sick in bed. And one thing I was so happy I had when I needed something to eat but didn't really have the energy to cook myself something was Factor Meals. Got a couple of these in the fridge at all times and they are delicious, fresh, never frozen, chef-crafted meals. And they're ready to go in just about two minutes. And this is convenience food that is actually tasty and full of real ingredients and not hyper-processed crap. And they got you covered all throughout the day. They got pancakes, smoothies, grab-and-go bites, and uh, you can get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause and reschedule deliveries at any time. So head to factormeals.com slash trek50 and use code trek50 to get 50% off. That's code trek50 at factormeals.com slash trek50 to get 50% off. Back for another game. You know it. What's going on? Just one more week till Max Fun Drive. <laughs> Hard to believe. It's been a heck of a year since the last one. We're now a worker-owned co-op. We raised $50,000 for charity last year. And we've added a bunch of awesome new shows. But do you think we're ready to do it again? Absolutely. Lovely new gifts are lined up. The episodes will be amazing. And wait till everyone hears the bonus content. Yeah, plus they know to go to MaximumFun.org newsletter, so they're getting all the news. Oh, like that meetup day is on Thursday, March 21st. Then what's bothering you? Me? Oh, nothing. We're all set for Max Fun Drive to start on Monday, March 18th. I just didn't want you to see this coming. Check. What? Hang on! Most of the plants humans eat are technically grass. Most of the asphalt we drive on is almost a liquid. The formula of WD-40 is San Diego's greatest secret. Zippers were invented by a Swedish immigrant love story. On the podcast Secretly Incredibly Fascinating, we explore this type of amazing stuff. Stuff about ordinary topics like cabbage and batteries and socks. 
Topics You'd Never Expect to Be, the title of the podcast. Secretly Incredibly Fascinating. Find us by searching for the word secretly in your podcast app. And at MaximumFun.org. Hey, Ben. What's that, Adam? Did you discover yourself and Edward Larkin? I did. Uh, it's just a, a straight visual Larkin, one of the henchmen of uh, of the emerald chain that is chasing the escaping slaves out of the factory. Is I think he's the first one that gets hit with a a beam from Book's ship when it comes out of the mist is an Andorian who definitely isn't in the kind of Andorian makeup you do for somebody that's going to be in a close-up mm-hmm. because his head is so big. His head is like Ferengi-sized. It looks like they just had like a Halloween store rubber Andorian mask that they put on somebody and we're just like, run as fast as you can and uh, we're going to like digitally explode you that's great. In, this, in this shot. <laughs> <laughs> but his big giant melon uh, really got me. So he's going to be my Edward Larkin. Can't be easy to run around like that. No. Did you find an Edward Larkin, my friend? It feels super hack and tropey to say it, but when you Jake a chip, you're the Edward Larkin. I think uh, <laughs> Michael Burnham taking book ship and going out on a mission. I mean, she's having the most fun to me. The most ill-advised fun. Nice. What we've got next week is uh, is Unification 3. Yeah. The next episode of Star Trek Discovery. Finally tying up all the loose threads left at uh, the end of Unification 2. Right. We're going back to Romulus. Uh, where <laughs> we're going to see how the soup tastes now. Yeah. They've come a long way culinarily. Romulus is long gone. They're making soup somewhere oh, else yeah. is the deal. So Yeah. So I wonder what the Coat Malat are up to a thousand years later. Oh no. I, I hope they're still around. I guess it would be only eight hundred years later from the last time we saw the Coat Malat, right? I'm sure they're doing great. Still speaking their minds. Still annoying. Still as going hell. in through the front door. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Still cutting people up with swords. You know, you know the thing about the Co-op Malad is their missionary position every time. <laughs> uh, did you find anything about the next episode? Uh, yeah, I scrubbed to the end of uh, of the Ready Room show. Thank you. Thank you all so much. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, what did you find there at the end of the Ready Room? Uh... Adam. It did not look to me as though Michael Burnham had left Starfleet. So I was I was confused. Maybe maybe yeah. it was a flashback. Maybe the first scene of the next episode is her it like picks up exactly where it left off and she just like shakes her head, nah, I can't do it, and puts the badge right back on her chest. <laughs> oh, I'm back. I'm back on board this show. If if that's what happens. That's great. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it seems like uh, it seems like three points of data is not quite enough to triangulate in three dimensional space. Yeah, gonna need a fourth data point. Yeah, so uh, looking forward to seeing how they come up with that, uh, whether it's next week or beyond. But uh, we're gonna leave it with our good buddy Robs, 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 Robs from here. Have a 
Have a pleasant week. Thanks for listening. Yeah, make it a great week, guys. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to the end. <laughs> yeah. And uh, live long and prosper and just thanks. Smash, like, and subscribe. The Greatest Discovery is a Maximum Fun podcast hosted by Adam Pranica and Ben Harrison. The show is produced by me, Rob Schulte. Our theme music is by Adam Ragusea, who has a wonderful, wonderful cooking page on YouTube that you should all go check out. If you're looking for more Trek, why don't you look at some of our old episodes? Discover a new classic. We've covered comic books. We've got an interview with Anson Mount. Not to mention the previous seasons of Discovery, as well as Picard, Lower Decks. There's a whole bunch. And don't forget, you can now follow us on Twitter and Instagram under the handles Greatest Trek. Those accounts are run by the great Bill Tilly. We appreciate you, Bill. Thanks for doing that. If you'd like to support this podcast, it's always helpful to get a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Or, you want to do a little bit extra? Head to MaximumFun.org slash join and you'll get all the bonus episodes we've put out for this show as well as everything else Maximum Fun bonus content related. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week on The Greatest Discovery. Maximumfun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned, audience supported.